This is W-O-W-D-L-P, Tacoma Park. Welcome to the Artist Experience Radio Show on 94.3 FM and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. This is Sheila Blake, and I'm here with my husband, Peter. A couple of weeks ago, we did a program about the exhibition at the National Gallery of Art, The Double, Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900. The show is filled with iconic work, And we talked about what a pleasure it is to see our old radical friends that have now settled comfortably into art history. And still, they are radical. Explosions of innovation, so well situated between Marcel Duchamp and with Ronnie Horn. And you wonder, what on earth could happen next? Really, nothing comes to my mind. Maybe we've stumbled stumbled to the far edge of Western contemporary art. Maybe we did. Ah. Anyway, we return with our good friend to see the double show again, and I found myself unable to convince her of the pleasure in seeing, for instance, the Jasper Johns flags. I mean, here we were, standing right in front of it, and I thought, as you listeners probably do, how do I communicate the source of this visual thrill? So I took her over to one of the Andy Warhol disasters, and she said she wouldn't want it in her house, which is funny to me because my daughter actually has a Warhol electric chair in her bedroom. And I kept thinking, I should be able to do this. If I can't convince her, at least say something meaningful. So we walked over to the Rauschenberg pieces in the exhibit, Factum 1 and Factum 2, and I saw these two almost but not quite identical collages as so perfectly balanced pieces of paper, fader, photographs, drips of paint, and looking from one to the other just doubled the pleasure. But still, how do I transmit this, I think? Let's try pointing out the strips of purple against the faded tea-stained papers and the dull yellow of the brushstroke that's a bird and how each shape pushes forward or recedes and then the red tea on the bottom right anchors the whole. And looking from one to the other, the decisions in making of them come alive. Yes, you know, pointing out bits that you think are beautiful. Look at this red, look at this shadow. That's fun if your friend is already totally into it with you. But it doesn't work if she wants to know what in the world you see in it. When your companion has already said they don't get it, pointing to something and saying, look, it's so beautiful, doesn't cut it. So today, we're going to look for a new path. Well, really, I have to be honest, I never really liked Rauschenberg until a few years ago when I saw a combine at Glenstone. But something changed for me, and Factum 1 and Factum 2 are beautiful. And I can't say why that's changed. 
I don't think knowledge is necessary to like these pieces. They're just so, so aesthetically pleasing. But some familiarity, some acceptance seems necessary. Yeah, I, I agree with you that knowledge is not necessary. There's nothing to decode, nothing to interpret, nothing to analyze in the works of Rauschenberg. Nevertheless, we are prepared to talk for an hour about Rauschenberg, what he was up to. So how do we explain this contradiction? Well, we'll just have to see. We will. So this is a great challenge for us. Factum one and factum two are pieces that probably baffle almost all the visitors to the exhibit who do not find it beautiful at all. And these people are not Philistines. Philistines. Uh, lots of people who want to like Rauschenberg just can't. You can see images of these works online at the National Gallery's website and the uh, robertrauschenberg.org the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation.org website, our Facebook website. But I must say, the images don't work online. You have to see them in the real, on the wall, in their real size and in their real texture to, to see them as good looking. So these are two almost identical pieces, one owned by the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles and the other by the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He worked on them both at the same time. Uh, they're collages uh, with paint, images arranged with a, with a large, thick splat of red paint in the center, which doesn't represent anything. It's an object in itself. Well, these were done in 1957. And 10 years later, Rauschenberg's combines go way beyond collage. Rauschenberg's pieces have been described as, and I'm going to quote, some of the most influential, poetic, and revolutionary works in the history of American art. Good quote. And they've also been called ramshackle hybrids between painting and sculpture, stage prop, and three-dimensional scrapbook assemblage. And right. they're also criticized from now, from the other side, as being unoriginal to this Texas-born guy. The idea of combining three-dimensional found objects into a crazy, beautiful mess is part of African-American art ma making. But how would Bob Rauschenberg <laughs> have seen this? This just keeps coming up, coincidences in art. And it happens that artists through time not just the ones in New York have come up with very similar work that converges and then diverges in their progressions. Rauschenberg's Canyon is the 1959 Combine. Oil, pencil, paper, fabric, metal, cardboard box, printed paper, printed reproductions, photographs, wood, paint tube, and mirror on canvas with oil on taxidermied eagle string and pillow. <laughs> <laughs> when you, yeah, when, you know, when you say that combine, that's the word that Rauschenberg came up with instead of, you know, assemblage. Um, perfect. I think you, you gave the perfect description just now of one of them, ending with the taxidermied eagle, string and pillow. 
Lots of people thought this was some kind of a joke, and maybe some of our listeners think so too. But how are we going to provide the key to our listeners, the key to, in air quotes, understanding Rauschenberg? Isn't that just an awful word for what we're talking about, understanding? But appreciating is even worse. <laughs> well, what can we say that will put you in the right frame of attention? As we just said, a close reading, where we say, look, here at the lovely wistful expression on the look of the face or the brush strokes on the surface of the flag. You know, that sort of thing doesn't seem to work. There seems at first to be nothing to say except to try to explain what's come before and what's become possible. We think it's thrilling. Yeah, so what came before? Let's start with something to compare this to, a baseline, a work of modernism. Uh, Wallace Stevens' poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, classic of modernist art. Here is the first stanza. Among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. So 20 snowy mountains sets the scene, a large landscape, a huge world of white which has stopped. Everything is still. Then a jump cut, as in a movie, to the eye of the blackbird, which blinks or maybe turns to look at you. There is a contrast. The vast, still white jumps to a small black, an eyeball moves, which is a discordant note, but you expect to return to the tonic theme of the snow, and you will. There are massive, elusive qualities in each of these images, the snow, the mountains, the blackbird, all bring up feelings and allegorical meanings which you expect to be manipulated by the artist, who you expect will bring you back again and again to the feelings that have been set up. Wallace Stevens is going to be doubling back, making patterns, and clarifying the patterns. Okay, so now let's turn back to Rauschenberg, factum one, factum two. What if you imagine yourself in the place of the artist, uh, got rid of any elusiveness, any unity, any expression of vague but powerful emotions? What if you, as the artist, took out all the stories, all the references to the work of the great masters, ruthlessly, ruthlessly took it all out? Could you still make something beautiful, informative, and fascinating. Could you make art without expression, without a story? Well, yes. So here's an example that you're already familiar with. When you walk down a, st a street, a city street, New York City, there's sounds in sequence. There's sights, there's smell, there's space alternating with blankness. It doesn't have a coherent meaning. It doesn't show you genius, which you then get to admire. It just is what it is. Well, that's a good example, especially since we were bombarded by all of these <laughs> things in New York yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Right. 
<laughs> take a walk. Like you said, the world presents itself in a lot of randomness, and it's full and rich and thrilling. It's you, the viewer, who pays attention, who finds the beauty that's there, even though it wasn't created for your, for your enjoyment and enlightenment. So for this complex story, we thought we could enlist the help of Louis Manant, the New Yorker writer, and his recent book, The Free World, published in 2021 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. This book, which I have recommended to just about everybody I know, tells the stories and gives the profiles that illuminate the huge developments of the 50s in world relations, art, literature, popular culture. He originally set out to describe the 60s, but realized that the world-changing developments were the products of the 50s. George Cannon, Jean-Paul Sartre, George Orwell, Hannah Arendt, all those people you heard about in college but never actually read. So what are you waiting for? Go get this book. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWD, Tacoma Radio. We're talking today about Robert Rauschenberg, two of his works, Doubles of each other are currently on exhibit at the National Gallery of Art in a show entitled The Double, Identity and Difference in Art Since 1900. The show is up until October 31st. Nice ring, though. Yeah. In Chapter 8 of The Free World, the author, Louis Menant, tells the story of how Rauschenberg and three of his innovative collaborators, John Cage, Merce Cunningham and Jasper Johns transformed the art world and made it international. We didn't invite Louis Menand on the show, but instead we will read from time to time from that chapter of the book. Let me now read a short section. So this is quoting from The Free World. Rauschenberg was born in 1925 in Port Arthur, Texas, which, as he later was excited to learn, is also the hometown of Janis Joplin. Being excited by serendipity was very Rauschenbergian. He cultivated a catch-as-catch-can, happy-go-lucky manner. He was an enfant terrible who was pure of heart, a troublemaker who couldn't help himself, an iconoclast but not a cynic. He liked to say that he never worked from an art historical agenda. He simply tried things out. Quote, nearly everything that I've done was to see what would happen if I did this instead of that, he once explained. Art shouldn't have a concept, he said on another occasion. That's the only concept that I've ever been consistent with. People found it hard not to like Rauschenberg. He was gregarious and he had a big laugh, though not everyone found the ingenuous entirely ingenuous. As he was perfectly aware, Rauschenberg pushed art in directions that art historical conditions made possible. And pretending not to have an art historical agenda was one of those directions. From the beginning of his career, he had his first gallery show in 1951, 
Rauschenberg made art that looked messy, willful, and arbitrary. His principal champions of the 1960s, the curators William Seitz and Alan Solomon and the critic Leo Steinberg, insisted that what seemed haphazard and prankish actually had formal and iconographic integrity. This did not so much overrate the coherence of Rauschenberg's work as underrate its radicalness. When Rauschenberg said that his only concept was to work without concepts, he was not making a phrase. He was identifying his key problematic. Okay, we're going to stop here. This is it's getting a little dense. We have to expand on the meaning here of the last two sentences. His only concept is to work without concepts. So, Louis Menon makes the excellent but difficult point that it is extremely hard to work without concepts. Working without concepts does not mean relying on intuition, because if you use intuition, concepts will come in elusively, unconsciously. Rauschenberg worked very hard to keep intuition at bay. His art is among the most counterintuitive, the most counterintuitive creative works ever produced. That's why it's so hard to get, because you're looking for the thread, the hidden meanings flowing underneath, and they're not there. They are not there. You know, we were talking at the top of the show about giving the key to Rauschenberg, and maybe that's basically it. Don't search for what's not there. But the viewers, I travel through the work, stopping at the images which have nothing to do with each other because he had a refined, both intuitive and learned sense of composition. And I am thinking about how for all of his radical, mind-expanding ideas, Rauschenberg had a beautiful, learned, and intuitive sense of design. So did Warhol in a more limited way. It never gets talked about because probably it would make them seem more conventional or admit that they cared about prettiness, but they are pretty, sometimes even in their ugliness. I mean, you should see that taxidermic <laughs> eagle is fantastic. And there's a contradiction about what you or maybe Louis Menon said about keeping intuition at bay, Peter. Mm. Point taken. Um, but Rauschenberg learned to talk about his work from John Cage. He originally tried to really describe it using profundity, uh, but he learned to say instead things like, I really wanted to see for myself whether there would be anything to look at. And I was so innocently and indulgently excited about the pieces because they worked. Yeah, <laughs> I know that kind of naive quotes. There are some, here are some quotes from those 60s artists. Okay, so Andy Warhol said, you need to let the little things that would or ordinarily bore you suddenly thrill you. And John Lennon said, famously, we're more popular than Jesus. And life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Kenneth Nolan, who was a student at Black Mountain College and, and became 
one of these very famous painters. A little later, yeah. <laughs> he said, I think of painting without subject matter as music without words. Nolan painted stripes. And here's a quote. I watched this film of him, and he, he was talking as he was working, and he said, I was painting black, and I thought, I'll use ultramarine. I can make it go any way I damn please. There's nothing mysterious about it. And you think, yeah, well, what is that? And Frank Stella said, what you see is what you see. I mean, many artists said many things, true and real, even Picasso did. But I use these quotes because those deadpan words were the style of the 60s. Right. Um, you know, I want to back up and emphasize and repeat for emphasis something else you just said about design. So design... And Rauschenberg's art is hard to talk about, you know, on, on the radio. Plus, there's our other topic associated with John Cage that we're going to emphasize, which is essentially what is excluded from his art. And that's a fascinating topic. But our listeners should never forget that Rauschenberg's art, we should never forget that his art is based in design. Yes whether he admitted it or not. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, as we love to do on this show, making connections between artists' ideas and shifts in society and the progress of history, nothing is simply linear. But there are artists and there are schools of art, the great ones, who, because of their own talents and their need to, to progress, to, to be at the front of the progression. Yeah, to be at the front. Yeah. Because of where they lived, who they knew, and their own super egos were able to redefine the present and open doors to the future. So if I'm going to talk about Rauschenberg, I'm going to have to talk about Black Mountain College. Rauschenberg, he attended the Kansas City Art Institute on the GI Bill, but he didn't stay long, and he moved to Paris to study art where he met a young American Susan Weil, and they were both bored by art school. She had found out about Black Mountain College, which is situated in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. It was founded on the principles of John Dewey, whose book title we use as the name of this show. It was a college with a whole range of courses. It was based in experiential learning, for which art all the arts, dance, music, visual, and writing were particularly suited. John Dewey, such a great person, such a mensch. I hope I'm using that word right. <laughs> <laughs> the goal of Black Mountain College was not to produce artists, but to produce citizens. The founder said, the democratic person must be an artist. So Dewey thought that people learn best by doing rather than reading or listening to lectures. And art making instills a habit of making independent choices. This is the pedagogy of progressive education. It came to us from the theories of John Dewey. Mm. Well, Black Mountain College they needed an art teacher who is committed to a Deweyan method of teaching. But painting and sculpture were still taught almost everywhere by drawing models and copying the masters. And in 1933, the Bauhaus 
closed its doors because it refused to accept Nazis on the faculty. The elite artists and scholars and musicians were allowed to enter the U.S., although many, many Europeans were abandoned by their own government. Black Mountain hired Joseph Albers and his wife, Annie Albers, who was a weaver. She was invited to come along. Annie had been allowed to teach weaving at the Bauhaus because it was considered a soft, feminine art, but she was also allowed to take a class in glass, and that's where she met Joseph Albers. Joseph used to go to the Weimar City Dump and collect bottles and cans and use them to create what he called, I won't say the German, shard pictures. The Bauhaus which was founded by the architect Walter Gropius, was a German art school that existed from 1919 to 1933. The school became famous for its approach to design, which attempted to unify the principles of mass production with individual artistic vision and to combine aesthetics with everyday function and crafts with all the fine arts. It was grounded in the idea of creating a comprehensive artwork in which all the arts would eventually be brought together. The purpose was to, through good design, make life better for the working class. At the Bauhaus, experiment rather than imitation was the basis for learning. The central skill was the one that lies at the intersection of art, craft, and craft design. Louis Sullivan, the American architect, stipulated the principle that form follows function. And Frank Lloyd Wright learned that from Sullivan, but also in an exchange of ideas with the Bauhaus philosophy of design. that had, And this all had an enormous impact on architects and designers. So when Albers came to teach at Black Mountain, he didn't speak English, but he was the model of discipline. His work on color and design gave new tools for students to explore the effects of color interaction, how color works, the predictable effects of color in the eye. It's between science and art, and Annie, Annie Albers used weaving as a vehicle to explore the effects of color and design. So here's Rauschenberg, who's the embodiment of crazy. Right, the crazy American. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rauschenberg was his nightmare. He was his worst student. He didn't believe in discipline, although his tremendous body of work through his life completely belies that fact. But he was young. Right. You know, I like what you said about color theory, what, what Albers taught. It's between science and art. Well, the interaction of color, the effects of putting one color next to another are real, but they are produced in the eye. They can't be quantified like you can't say four drops of ultramarine plus two drops of white next to three drops of Mars violet plus two drops of white will make the violet look pink. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. But through many experiments, your eye becomes sensitized, and you get better at be able, being able to predict the effects of color interaction, which can be absolutely dramatic and essential to artists. Right, so it's a training. You know, I mean, you put your finger on uh, what distinguishes modern science, which is data. So um, 
it's not science if there's no data, but really color theory is real. It's not a pseudoscience. It's a real knowledge of the world, but it needs to be done through through a practice, a practice, a training. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. Well, you know, not to put myself on a plane with Rauschenberg, but I was taught in class, a class in color by Hans Beckman, a close Bauhaus friend of Albers. Uh, we weren't giving any kind of context. We were simply giving a series, giving a series of very tedious experiments with color aid paper, which had numbers instead of names, so we didn't name the colors. And I just didn't understand what that had to do with painting, with expression, for God's sake. But now, that's one of the most important classes I've ever had. It's completely integrated with how I think about color. You know, not to, to engage overly in stereotypes, but, you know, German teachers, at least from, from movies, you know, were used to being followed without... They didn't have to explain. Right. Uh, and they, so they just taught. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me read again from Louis Menant. When Albers was introduced to the faculty and students at Black Mountain, someone asked him what he hoped to accomplish. He answered, I want to open eyes. This meant getting students to see that any object is subject to artistic treatment and aesthetic consideration. Albers had students scavenge for ordinary materials, wood, straw, cardboard, dirt, and then explore the relations between them. He made art out of dead leaves. Annie made jewelry out of paper clips. It was Annie's weaving what was called at the Bauhaus a picture out of wool that encapsulated the essential Bauhaus challenge, the conversion of everyday materials to artistic purposes, and conversely, the artistic handling of the everyday. You know, I want to interject here that the uh, the modern concept of color theory came from weaving at the Globelin mm. uh, Tapestry mm. Company in France, and that's when they discovered about how these different color threads affect each other. And so it's very interesting that Annie Albers picked that up in a much more modern way. Right. But all of this, I would say, it certainly opened my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that description of Bauhaus art making, opening the eyes, it definitely describes Rauschenberg. Rauschenberg's training with Albers uh, must have been, I think, enormously important to him. Yet there's something different about Rauschenberg. I mean, what we just described as a process is also a good description of the work of Andy Goldsworthy, right? I mean, Andy's work is just gorgeous to almost everyone. Dead leaves, yes, but picked out in their fall colors, arranged in a pattern like a mandala. The, the images of a life lived in wonder, in nature, in the rain, in the sun, that does not describe Rauschenberg. <laughs> Rauschenberg once said that the only thing he got from Albers was humiliation. 
He said he made his art in secret because he knew Albers wouldn't like it. Well, he did contradict that himself, because here's another statement that Rauschenberg wrote. Albers was a beautiful teacher and an impossible person. He wasn't easy to talk to, and I found his criticism so excruciating and so devastating that I never asked for it. Years later, though, I'm still learning what he taught me because what he taught had to do with the entire visual world. He didn't teach you how to do art. The focus was always on your personal sense of looking. When he taught watercolor, he taught the specific properties of watercolor, not how to make a good watercolor picture. When he taught drawing, he taught the efficient functioning of line. Color was about the flexibilities and the complex relationships that colors have with one another. Mm. I consider Albers the most important teacher I've ever had, and I'm sure he considered me one of his poorest students. Coming from Paris, entering the middle of the term, and showing all that wildness and naivete and hunger, I must have seen not serious to him. And I don't think he ever realized that it was his discipline that I came for. Besides, my response to what I learned from him was just the opposite of what he intended. And to escape, this is me talking, not the quote anymore, and to escape from Albert's, Albert's color to achieve some predetermined result. That's why he ended up doing all those all white and all black <laughs> paintings. What a beautiful example of art influencing art. So you're listening to WOWD, Tacoma Park. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and we're talking today about the art of Robert Rauschenberg. We are reading sections of Louis Menon's new book on the intellectual history of the 50s titled The Free World. And we're working our way around to the two lovely works, lovely, by Rauschenberg, (laughs) currently on display at the East Wing of the National Gallery of Art in their exhibition, The Double, which is up until the end of October. We're going to take a short, short break, and when we return, we will discuss the collaborations of Robert Rauschenberg, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, and Jasper Johns. First Welcome back. You're listening to the Artist Experience Radio Show on WOWDLP Tacoma Park, 94.3 FM, and streaming on TacomaRadio.org. I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm joined today with my husband, Peter Blake. We're talking today about the art of Robert Rauschenberg. You can see two works by Rauschenberg titled Factum One and Factum Two at the National Gallery of Art's current show, The Double, up until October 31st. So we've been brought up now to the end of Rauschenberg's career as a student in 1949. 
He moved to New York City and started working. He had a show at Betty Parsons in 1951 after walking into the gallery with his portfolio. Oh, that's a dream of the past. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing sold from his show, however, except one piece was given away since the buyer explained that the price didn't matter because he didn't have any money. The buyer, or rather the giftee, was John Cage. So, in this book that we're talking about, The Free World, the author, Louis Menant, develops the complex multi-year collaboration between Rauschenberg, John Cage, Merce Cunningham, and Jasper Johns. Uh, This chapter is 90 pages, so we will have to pull out just a few details, focusing on our main goal today, which is to provide a framework for seeing the art of Rauschenberg. And it makes me kind of sad that we have to skip over his profiles of Cage and Merce Cunningham and Jasper Johns, because they all had their specific and fascinating life journeys. But here's a short sketch of Cage drawn from the free world. John Cage, early in his career, decided to never have a job. He never had much money, and he seems to have had a genius for friendship. You know, uh, Sheila, we we talked a few shows ago about his friendship with Laurie Anderson, and this was toward the end of his life in the early 90s. He opened his life to other artists. He was listed in the phone book, and he always answered the phone. Mm. He eventually enjoyed a popular culture celebrity as a zany genius, which was a part he could play. Like Rauschenberg, he didn't care very much if other people considered him a clown, or at least he dealt with it. And he, too, had it, was gregarious, and he had a big laugh. He was 12 years older than Rauschenberg. He had visited the, Bau, the Bauhaus in Germany before it closed. He got himself introduced to Arnold Schoenberg, who left Vienna for Southern California when the Nazis took over, and Cage studied with him there. And uh, the picture uh, Louis Menon paints of that study is an exact double of the study of Rauschenberg with Albers. Interesting. (laughs) It's what I said before the break, that through much looking and trial and error, you get sensitized to the effects of color and you get sensitized to design. But these are lifetime learning processes. You're never finished with the possibilities. So after studying with Schoenberg, Cage is a composer. He's, he's composing pieces. We opened our show with one of these pieces, uh, one of the sonatas for prepared piano. And, you know, it, it sounds like contemporary classical music with unusual tones. And he meets Merce Cunningham at the summer session of Martha Graham's Bennington School of Dance, held at Mills College in Oakland. He also meets there Laszlo Maholi Nagy, who invites him to teach at the new Bauhaus, which he set up in Chicago. There he meets Max Ernst, who invites him 
to live with him and Peggy Guggenheim in their whatever townhouse mansion Peggy has in New York City. I'm sure there was plenty of room. He meets André Breton and Marcel Duchamp. Lots of artists were here in the U.S. having escaped from Europe. Varian Fry helped a lot of them. Cage was ambitious. He was ambitious in his friends. I've just mentioned a few of the many illustrious friends. It's astounding to think of those thousands of hours of conversations with the world's artistic elite. But Cage felt a calling to create something new, something American, something that was his. He had no interest in the tradition, in continuing the tradition of Schoenberg. He began composing pieces from what he called sonorities, a flower pot struck with a mallet, things like that. In the 1940s, though, Cage was troubled. He could no longer see the point of composing. Schoenberg had already shown that you could write music without a key, and composers had used noise and silence in their music before Cage came along. All these things could be done. The question was, why do them? Cage always said that the answer came from Buddhism. People who knew Cage before and after his encounters with the Zen master Suzuki felt that he had changed from an argumentative and sometimes truculent person to a model of serenity. Although, as with Rauschenberg's boyish self-presentation, not everyone found the new cage entirely persuasive. And I'll add, parenthetically, that Cage himself, in one of his books, admitted that he did not meditate. He didn't have a Buddhist practice. That's a topic to ponder, but we'll move on. For that Zen master, Suzuki, what meditation reveals is the absence of conflict. Quote, the mistake consists in our splitting into two what is really and absolutely one, he wrote. Oppositions, something, nothing, finite, infinite, darkness, enlightenment, life and death, the binaries by which conscious thought seems to be structured are figments of the intellect and therefore cannot be transcended by rational means. This mapped nicely into Cage's distaste for making a distinction between sound and silence. Cage was learning all the time. He learned from someone that the Indian conception of music had no place for personal expression. And he himself was no longer interested in self-expressive work by other people. He thought the whole approach was misconceived and a bad way to listen to music or look at art. He, he was searching for a method that imposed a discipline on the act of composing, but that kept expression and personality out the musical memory of earlier music, out. Taste, out. Associations, all of this, out. The method he discovered was composition by chance operations. By the time he and Rauschenberg became friends, Cage had the method completely worked out. This is W-O-W-D. 
Tacoma Radio, the Artist Experience Radio Show. I'm Sheila Blake here with Peter Blake discussing the art of Robert Robert Rauschenberg. So John Cage joined up with Merce Cunningham, a principal dancer with Martha Graham, who wanted to get away from Graham's aesthetic and liberate dance from synchrony with music and from images and ideas. This has nothing to do with Zen Buddhism, Cunningham said. If the dancer dances, everything is here. He didn't want to work through images. He wanted to work through his body. This would lead to a completely new aesthetic. Merson Cage joined up and went on a national tour by car, just the two of them. And they stopped at Black Mountain College, and they loved it. Then that one year, everybody in our story finds themselves in this summer session at Black Mountain College, and their ideas get worked on in collaboration. Right. I mean, Rauschenberg just went there. He wasn't teaching. He wasn't a student. He just went there. But theater piece number one was the result. This is the granddaddy of happenings. Do you remember happenings? Oh, I mean, gosh. where did they? Why did they go out of fashion? I loved them. <laughs> Good, you can go by yourself. <laughs> oh well, when happening started, I was just a little too old. I had too many babies. I was buried in responsibilities, and a little too frightened. But I was intrigued, but frightened by too many people on drugs. But what about the Burning Man, that annual festival in Nevada, a temporary city that draws about 20,000 people a year and is based on buildings, art cars, and sculptures? Ah, good point. Um, really, it's excellent as, as um, a counterexample to Rauschenberg, just like we used Andy Goldsworthy. I mean, Burning Man is a happening, right, with audience participation, yes. But it doesn't have the anti-expression aesthetic of Cage and Rauschenberg. Burning Man is strongly devoted to suggestive images and spectacle. Uh, that makes it the antithesis of Rauschenberg's combines. Yeah. <laughs> so, back to Black Mountain, summer of 1952. So Cage has been working with the pianist David Tudor, and he reads an obscure tract by the theater director Antonin Artaud, I don't know how to pronounce that, Frenchman. He gets Cage to read it, and M.C. Richards is there to translate it. Merce Cunningham reads it, Artaud attacked theatrical convention. He recognized the vitality of the viewer's sensual experience at being in the theater and saw that as the thing, opposed to theater as a contrived literary form. Here's what Artaud described as the essence of the theater. Quote, the theater which opens on a physical field, requires that this field be filled, that its space be furnished with gestures, that the space live magically in itself, release within itself an aviary of sounds, 
and discover there new relations between sound, gesture, and voice. Okay, I mean, Artaud left out everything that you or I would think to put in a description of theater. So I'm going to read it again. The theater, which opens on a physical field, requires that the field be filled, that its space be furnished with gestures, that this space live magically in itself, release within itself an aviary of sounds, and discover there new relations, new relations between sound, gesture, and voice. So that summer at Black Mountain College, Cage, Cunningham, and Rauschenberg, and a couple others put on what was maybe the first happening, theater piece number one. And here is Cage's recollection of that event. At one end of the rectangular hall, the long end, was a movie, and at the other end were slides. I was up on a ladder delivering a lecture, which included silences, and there was another ladder which M.C. Richards and Charles Olson went up at different times to read poetry. Robert Rauschenberg was playing an old-fashioned phonograph that had a horn and a dog on the side listening, and David Tudor was playing a piano. And Merce Cunningham and other dancers were moving through the audience and around the audience. Rauschenberg's pictures were suspended above the audience. They were suspended at various angles, a canopy of painting above the audience. So that's the quote. So the movies, the readings, the piano, the records, all the different elements were performed for strictly measured segments of time determined by chance. The audience was seated in four sections around a center, and the performers used the aisles, and the audience faced each other. The performance lacked a focal point. There was no best seat. The paintings that were hung above the audience were Rauschenberg's series, White Paintings, and really, they were white paintings. Cage described the white paintings as airports for the light, shadows, and particles in the space around them. They proved that a canvas is never empty. The art is happening because of the canvas, but not on the canvas. This uses a standard idea of Marcel Duchamp and of John Dewey that the artist doesn't make the paintings signify, the viewer does. The art object itself is empty, inert. It is made by the spectator. As long as there's a spectator, there is significance. So, there are three stages to the artwork spectator encounter with this kind of art. So I'll read again from Louis Menant. The spectator comes to the work with an everyday perceptual apparatus with where's the best seat expectations. Expectations like that are deliberately and programmatically frustrated by the artwork. There is no focal point where a focal point is expected. No shapes or colors where shapes and colors are customary. 
no designed sounds, even though sound is the medium. Yet something is there. And when the spectator returns to the world, it is with new eyes, new ears, and a new sense of the order and disorder in things as they are, with open eyes. Cage said, Our business in living is to become fluent with the life we are living, and art can help this. For Cage, Rauschenberg, and Cunningham, the key to helping people see, hear, and feel was to refuse to tell people what they should be seeing, hearing, and feeling. Quote, I just don't think that what I do is non-expressive, Cunningham said. It's just that I don't try to inflict it on anybody. You know, Peter, when you were giving that whole description, I was going through so many emotions, part boredom, part anger, frustration. I could just imagine myself sitting in this performance thinking, I need to get out of here. Uh I don't need this sort of emptiness to teach me anything. And But when you said, when you leave the performance, you see the world with new eyes. Yeah. That is really good. I like that. So here we arrive, I hope, at the point that we've been aiming at, describing the standpoint or the attitude that allows you to view Robin Rausch, Robert Rauschenberg's work. So the artist Frank Stella said, I love Velasquez, but I could never paint like Velasquez, so I paint stripes. That is a very profound statement. So as an audience, what do you all think? Pretty good. I'll let that stand. All right. Okay. Okay. Speaking of chance, Ellsworth Kelly used randomness around that time, the early 50s, do we have time to talk about it? Ellsworth Kelly and his use of randomness? Of course, on another show. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sheila, our listeners should know that your new paintings will be on exhibit in Washington, D.C. at the Foundry Gallery starting next week, September 30th through all of October. Okay, thanks for mentioning it. My show is full of stories. It's the absolute opposite of what we've been talking about. It's called Memory is a Funny Thing. And that that uh, title was suggested to me by Michael Stipe from REM. I'd love for all of you to come and see the show at the Foundry Gallery. Yeah, it is full of stories, the opposite of Robert Rauschenberg. But, you know, John Cage insisted that each artist be considered first in their originality, not their tradition. Um, I know how you always fight against being categorized. And that's, of course, the first thing that people want to know about you. What kind of artist are you? And that is not the point at all. The point is you have to let the art tell you what kind of art it is. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. So stay tuned, folks. Coming up next, this music from 10 a.m. until 1. Bobby Hill and Clay Fink play free jazz and other improvised music that is beyond categorization. No standards, no standard repertoire. 
On alternate Sunday evenings from 8 to 10, our friend Gail Barron's hosts Night Ride Home. This show features singer-songwriters, alternative and indie bands, just good songwriting. And in this time slot next week, listen to Lost Treasures. DJ Mackie spins rare records that never made it to the digital age, including folk, jazz, rock, and international. And on Wednesday mornings from 10 to noon, Borderlines, another show with a Joni Mitchell theme song, No Border, No Lines. Like we say ourselves, it's essential to erase the boundaries, the categorizations, and get beyond the borderlines. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. All of our music on this show has been by John Cage, and the, the opening piece was Sonata for Prepared Piano, and, and this was written in the late 40s before he discovered the technique for of chance operations. Now, the piece you're going to hear is called 58, and it is 58 uh, instrumental musicians in a church scattered around in different places, and they are playing notes that are determined randomly for random durations. And so, open your ears. For 58.